Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Good morning and welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Timothy Matthews. I'm the director of Kennesaw State University's Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity, which is sponsoring this morning's event. Our guest speaker today is Dr. David Scarbeck. He is an associate professor of political science at Brown University. Uh, Dr. Scarbeck has a BS in economics from San Jose State University and an MA and PhD in economics from George Mason University. His area of expertise is the political economy of institutions and institutional change with a particular focus on collective action issues, norms, and ethnic conflict. He has published in many prestigious peer-reviewed academic journals such as American Political Science Review, the Journal of Law, Economics and Organization, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, and Public Choice. He's also published two award-winning books titled The Social Order of the Underworld, How Prison Gangs Govern the American Penal System, and The Puzzle of Prison Order, Why Life Behind Bars Varies Around the World. Today, he will be giving a talk uh, focusing on the second of these two books. Um, so please uh, join me in welcoming David virtually to Kennesaw State University. David, take it away. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share with you uh, some of the work that I've been involved with uh, lately. In this new book, uh, the main question that I try to answer is why does the informal life in prison, why does prison social order vary so much depending on when and where we look? So in the book, I argue that this should be puzzling to us. Prisons, by definition and practice, are very similar institutions regardless of where we look. Uh, they all share core uh, similarities in four ways. The first is that people who, um, uh, there's a selection effect about who goes to prison, right? It's people who are charged with or convicted of crimes. There's also a selection bias in that prisons tend to be populated by disproportionately by people from disadvantaged socioeconomic and minority communities. Uh, while incarcerated, prisoners everywhere are forced to interact with other prisoners. They can't choose who to live among. And finally, there are no exit options available to prisoners. So each one of these characteristics is true of prisons everywhere. Uh, and I argue that not only are these important in an everyday respect, but when we think as social scientists about which characteristics of social interactions um, lead them to be more or less cooperative, each one of these points in the direction of less cooperation. So in the book, I argue that prisons share these fundamental characteristics, but when we look around the world, the informal life of prisons varies in a tremendous way. So in some prisons, prisoners act together uh, to collectively exert an important influence on the everyday life of prisons. In other prisons, prisoners don't have a big 
influence on the sort of day-to-day -day operations of a facility. So why do prisoners have more and less influence in different prisons? Second, when prisoners do have influence, they organize themselves socially in very different ways. So in some prisons, they rely on very decentralized institutions to govern uh, social and economic interactions. In others, they invest in much more centralized ways. So to give just a few examples, um, in some prisons, there's a very clearly defined hierarchy of social standing, and each person is sort of clearly set somewhere in that hierarchy. In others, there's not really much uh, difference in the relative social standing of other prisoners. There's no rigid hierarchy. Likewise, in some prisons, prisoners elect from amongst themselves prisoner leaders, and these leaders play an important role in governing the daily life of prisons. In others, there are no clear um, outstanding individuals in the prisoner community, no clear leaders. In some prisons, prisoners write detailed rules and regulations and even written constitutions. They outline what's the expected behavior from prisoners, and prisoners are expected to memorize and follow these rules uh, when interacting with others. By contrast, in more decentralized regimes, prisoners just rely instead on sort of loose social norms and uh, there's no sort of explicit um, statement about what's expected of other prisoners behavior. Finally, in some uh, centralized institutions, prisoners create um, clearly delineated, uh, highly regimented and organized groups and these are dominant players in the prison uh, community, whereas in others, prisoners tend to rely more on sort of loose affiliations with others. These loose affiliations are often quite fleeting, in fact. So in this book, I'm trying to understand why do prisoners have more and less influence in the everyday life of prisons, and why do they sometimes choose to invest in more centralized institutions versus more decentralized ones? Now, a core part of my argument is the need to focus on governance institutions. Governance institutions define and enforce property rights, they facilitate social and economic interactions, and they aid in the production of collective and public goods. Uh, on your screen, you should see um, uh, the, the barriers uh, to a prison cell uh, that's taken from within the cell. And as you look at this picture, you can identify a few sources of official governance institutions. The correctional officer at the center of the screen, it's his job to ensure the safety and the security of that facility. So that officer provides governance. The architecture of a prison can help to govern it. The bars that keep a prisoner locked in a cell also keep other people locked out, providing some security over person and property rights. So that's those two examples of official governance institutions in prisons. Uh, but I want to argue that even when officials do their jobs well, uh, prisoners often have a demand for extra legal governance institutions, for governance provided beyond the state or not from prison officials, but often by prisoners themselves. So why do prisoners have a demand for extra legal governance? I think there's at least two reasons. Um, this is a picture uh, of an overcrowded uh, dormitory in a state prison in California. Um, the level of overcrowding that you see in this picture now is, is no longer uh, in place. Um, but I think this picture describes well the vulnerability that a person might have while incarcerated, whether he's sort of taking a nap during the middle of the day, playing cards with friends, um, getting a haircut, he's potentially exposed to actions from other prisoners who might try to harm him or steal uh, his property. So the first reason why 
prisoners demand extra legal governance is because they feel themselves and their property is not quite safe uh, enough. A second reason is that while prisons have become far safer in the last 30 years, there's still always the possibility of large-scale disruptions and riots, like the one you'll see on your screen in a moment. While these are relatively rare, um, the magnitude and danger when these situations break out is so great that it makes sense for prisoners to invest on the margin time, energy, and resources to try to avoid large-scale disruptions like that from occurring. Finally, one of the most important reasons for extra legal governance in prisons is to govern the underground economy. These are some of the thousands of phones that are confiscated from prisoners in California every single year, and every single one of them is contraband, they're illicit. That means that prisoners cannot rely on official governance institutions at all in gaining access to these commodities, in regulating the trade of them, or adjudicating disputes that arise in the underground economy. In addition to phones, there's also often substantial demand by prisoners for drugs, alcohol, tobacco, a wide range of illicit goods and services that by their illicit nature requires extra legal institutions. So uh, this research is very much in the spirit of legal scholars like uh, Robert Ellickson and Lisa Bernstein in that I'm seeking to understand private ordering institutions, both to study society and exchange in the shadow of the law, but also the viability and robustness of order without law. So I wanna sort of break the talk up into addressing the two main questions in my book. The first is why are extra legal governance institutions more important in some prisons than in others? My main argument is a fairly simple and straightforward one. I argue that when prison officials provide high quality governance, that is, they provide lots of resources, they administer the prison effectively, and they provide high quality governance to the prisoner community. When official governance is good, prisoners have very little reason to invest in extra legal institutions. They have very little reason to replicate or reproduce the governance that officials are already providing. However, when prison officials fail to govern, providing few resources, poor administration, and low quality governance, then prisoners have the scope to invest in their own governance institutions to fill that gap in governance. Um, in order to sort of tease out this uh, hypothesis, I'm gonna look at two very different examples of prisons. I'm gonna look at a Bolivian prison where prison officials provide close to no governance, and I'm gonna look at Nordic prisons where they provide a very high quality of governance. So that's the first question, the first part of the talk. The second part of the talk is gonna address the second research question, which is why are extra legal institutions sometimes very centralized and sometimes very decentralized? And my main argument here is that prisoners will rely on decentralized institutions, norms, gossip, ostracism, uh, to govern themselves when it's low cost and effective to do so. And I argue that it's low cost and effective to use these reputation-based mechanisms if the community is so small that you can communicate at low cost other people's reputations. However, when prison populations get too large, these reputation-based mechanisms tend to become less effective and prisoners then avert and, and start to invest more in centralized extra-legal institutions. So to test this theory, 
in the later part of the talk, I'm going to look at two sets of comparative case studies. I'm going to look at the history of California over time, a period when prison populations were very small and prisoners relied on decentralized institutions, and a later period when their populations were very large and they instead turned to very centralized extralegal institutions. Likewise, I'm going to care, compare men's prisons in California today uh, with men's prisons in England today uh, to further test this theory. Now, um, in ways, I'm making a methodological argument in this book, and I start from the observation that the vast, vast majority of prison ethnographies focus on either a single prison or a single prison system. So there's very little comparative analysis. And so in my argument, I'm sort of arguing in favor of bringing a more comparative perspective uh, to the study of prison sociology. Uh, likewise, I argue that we can use individual single-site ethnographic studies as our own data in a broader analysis. And so in the book more generally, I sort of test these theories with 15 in-depth case studies, dozens of shadow cases, uh, and in one particular chapter, my own original historical research on prison social order. So that's the basic summary of the argument that I'm making. Now I'd like to turn and provide some evidence uh, to support uh, my ideas. Right, actually, if I could just interject quickly with a question from a, a student. Um, he asks, based on your hypothesis, would this mean that prison communities create a sort of inner society amongst themselves separate from the prison authorities? That's exactly right. I'm going to argue and provide evidence in a moment that um, prisons have prisoners have their own society. They have their own community that is um, often not infringed on extensively by other prisoners. So I want to understand the informal, the life amongst prisoners. Why does that vary so much? Uh, thank you uh, to the clarifying question. Uh, so first, let's tackle this question about the quality of official governance institutions. And I want to start by talking about Latin American prison systems, where typically the quality of official governance is very low. Um, in general, it's fair to characterize Latin American prisons as being tremendously overcrowded, sometimes three, four, five times the intended capacity of a prison. Prisoners um, have little access to staff. They, the staff who work in Latin American prisons tend to be more poorly trained than in other countries. The prisoners themselves live in a desperate poverty, often lacking basic necessities like food and clean water. Uh, they have little to no access to health care. Prisons themselves are often very unhygienic environments, and the very buildings that prisoners are held captive in are often in disrepair. So the quality of official governance is very low across Latin America. Consistent with my uh, claims, there's a proliferation of extra legal institutions that I argue arise or emerge in response to the need that's left because of the failure of official governance. This is just a small sample of examples from across Latin America of informal prisoner groups. Um, they vary in their effectiveness, their desirability, and their criminality, but their names give some indication of their in intended purpose. So in Peru, there are delegates. In Guatemala, committees of order and discipline. Uh, there are internal chiefs, there are inmate police directors. Um, there's a proliferation of extra-legal governance institutions. And so this is consistent with my claim that when officials govern less, prisoners govern more. 
But because this is at such an abstract level, I think we miss out on some of the important mechanisms that are in operation. So I want to drill down and look at a specific case, the case of San Pedro prison in La Paz, Bolivia. Now, from the outside, this prison in some ways looks very much like a Western prison. There are sort of large foreboding walls. There are uh, prison staff that are guarding the perimeter and regulating who can enter and who can leave. Um, but other than that, this prison um, is, in a sense, um, totally self-contained. There are no guards that are maintaining order inside the prison. The guards do not even have a physical presence inside this prison. Um, according to the National Warriors Guild, the prison administration provides no rehabilitation services, no schools, and minimal health care. Another says that prisoners have complete freedom of movement within the prison. Uh, one commission notes that they do provide food, but the food is not properly prepared. It often leads to epidemics and infections. And they say, quote, the food is also insufficient, obliging many prisoners to pay for their own food if they have the money to do so. So prison officials provide a very minimal level of resources, this sort of gruel-like substance that you see. In addition to that, they provide food, uh, excuse me, water and electricity, but prisoners are expected to pay uh, a share of those costs before they be, uh, can be released from the prison. <clears throat> Within the prison itself, this is a picture sort of from above the prison looking down on it, prisoners don't even have the right to a prison cell. Prisoners have to rent or buy a place to live. This can range from a sort of multi-room apartment if someone is, has the money to pay for it, uh, but it, it may also be simply uh, renting a bed within a sort of shared uh, common room. There are seven different housing sections uh, within this prison, and uh, they vary a lot in quality. Um, within, um, basically, when you enter the prison, you can, you can buy one of these, and many prisoners sell them uh, upon release. Each housing section typically has a number of committees that are uh, created by prisoners and run by prisoners. To become a committee member, you typically have to own a home within a particular housing section and be elected uh, by other residents of that housing section. So each housing section has committees in charge of resolving disputes, providing education, organizing entertainment. One report says, quote, each section has the feel of a neighborhood or even a small village with its own courtyard, plaza, and shops. The committee in charge of each section manages it, repairing the sidewalks or painting the walls. Each directiva sets an assessment charge for prisoners in the section, and each committee is responsible for its own budget. Inmates pay for all services. So the prison is run essentially by the people who are held captive in it. In addition to these um, sort of informal political uh, governing committees, there's also a flourishing market economy within the prison. Because there are no guards um, in, the, in the facility and in control of the facility, uh, prisoners are allowed to engage in any sort of economic activity that they'd like. One uh, report explains that the home is, uh, the prison is home to cooks, painters, restaurateurs, carpenters, electricians, cleaners, accountants, and doctors, uh, as well as artisans. Um, the table that you see in this picture is a little food stand. It's operated by prisoners and for prisoners. And in comparison to that sort of gruel-like substance seen on an earlier slide, um, this entrepreneurial prisoner is providing greater access to more desirable and more nutritious food. Uh, 
another vendor explains why they engage in this market activity. He says, not everyone likes the food in the canteen. So we sell snacks and sandwiches here for inmates and their families when they come to visit. With the money I make, I pay my rent and keep a few Bolivianos for cigarettes. Now, this prison economy is able to operate because for a small fee or bribe, people on the outside of the prison can enter into the facility. Across Latin America, it's incredibly common for prisoners to rely on family visits to gain access to basic necessities like food, clean water, and medicine. In addition to this sort of market economy within the prison, there's also sort of a, a sphere of civil society. So something that's unique to Latin American prisons is that um, by law, an incarcerated individual's child and spouse can come live with them. The children are technically only allowed to live with an incarcerated parent until the age of eight, but in practice, that threshold or constraint has never really been enforced. So depending on the time of year, San Pedro prison is home to anywhere between two and 400 children. Um, these kids will typically leave during the morning uh, to leave the prison, go to school, and return in the afternoon where they will spend time uh, with a, a father or parents. Um, in response to the sort of need to uh, protect and care for the kids who live in the prison, they formed the San Pedro Prison Parents Association. They organize sort of educational and cultural activities for the children. They also create rules that they expect not only um, you know, families to follow, but also other prisoners who have no children to follow. So for example, one of the rules is that uh, you can't fight in the presence of children. And uh, based on conversations with formerly incarcerated people there, this is a rule that's actually followed, actually has some sort of teeth. And um, in creating it, they're creating a safer environment for the kids and for the community more generally. So there are a variety of types of extra legal governance in operation. You know, there are housing sections, there's a parents association, there's market activities. Um, these provide resources, they aid in the administration of the prison, and they help prisoners to self-govern their social and economic interactions with each other. Um, these particular institutions also change the incentives in ways that tend to improve social order at the prison. So the ability to buy uh, a prison cell and to modify it, such as maybe adding an extra lock to the door, means that people can actively um, uh, invest in ways to protect themselves, to make themselves and their property safer. Because prisoners can sell their cells when they leave the prison, they're the residual claimants, they earn any profits from that cell, they have an incentive to improve the rules that committees develop for each housing section. If the value of a cell in a particular housing section improves, the better it's governed, then prisoners have an incentive to govern better. Finally, uh, the ability to engage in economic activity means that there are more opportunities to benefit yourself without simply stealing from or taking from uh, other prisoners. So it provides more scope for mutually beneficial activity. So that's one extreme where prison officials aren't even present in the facility and there's a, a myriad of extra legal institutions that come into existence. I wanna now switch to the complete opposite polar extreme, uh, which is the case of Norway. In the Nordic prisons more generally, they provide substantial resources very effective administration of prisons and high quality governance institutions. So their prisons typically hold fewer than 100 prisoners. Uh, during the pandemic, the average prison in the Nordic countries holds about 70 people. Uh, there's no overcrowding uh, in these prisons. 
Um, the, there's as many prison staff as prisoners in the facility, meaning that they're able to operate it very quickly and they can provide assistance um, uh, quickly uh, and tailored to prisoner needs. The prison staff in Nordic countries are well-trained and compensated, and that job is respected um, in a way that I think in the U United States, we sort of respect, for example, uh, public school teachers. Well, in the Nordic countries, working in corrections is seen as a sort of socially um, praiseworthy uh, profession. And then in general, the prisoners themselves are typically very well fed. They have access to a wide range of educational and vocational training programs, uh, and they have access to a variety of, sort of cultural and entertainment uh, activities. Now, this is a picture of a prison cell in a maximum security prison in Norway. Uh, you can see that there's a sort of bed. Uh, there's a TV up on the top right. Um, there's a little uh, sort of monitor or, or communication um, next to the bed for contacting prison staff. There's a large uh, sunny window and a writing desk uh, as well. This is one of the common areas of that same maximum security prison. Many of these prisoners have access to their own kitchens where they can prepare their own food. Uh, and this is the gym, uh, the gymnasium, uh, which has uh, basketball hoops and a climbing wall uh, to provide, um, you know, sort of enjoyable activities for prisoners who are incarcerated. So I hope I've convinced you that the quality of governance in Nordic prisons is far, far higher than Latin America, and in fact, probably higher than any other prison system uh, in the world. And consistent with my argument, we see very few extra legal governance institutions in the prison. Uh, they don't have housing committees, they can't buy their cell. There's not extensive economic activity taking place within the prison. Um, instead, they have a very soft and decentralized system. They tend to use ostracism as their main uh, mechanism of social control. And they ostracize people who they dislike, people who have significant drug addictions, people who complain too much, uh, and uh, people who've been convicted of sex offended tend to be ostracized, uh, but they're not sort of directly sought out and harmed or penalized in any other way. So in these situations where prison officials provide so much, there's little need for prisoners to invest their own time and effort in um, engaging in market activity or producing governance mechanisms. Those needs have already been met. My second argument in the book is about why do prisoners invest in sometimes in very centralized institutions and in others very decentralized systems. And so to illustrate this argument, I want to start by looking at the California prison system. Um, today in the California prison system, um, it's dominated by racially segregated, pretty well organized prison gangs. Uh, what are prison gangs? Prison gangs um, are groups that operate in prison. They typically require something like a lifetime uh, membership commitment. There's restricted membership in prison gangs. Not just anyone can join. They regulate and decide who to bring into the group and who to exclude. And gang membership is also mutually exclusive, meaning that you can only be part of one prison gang. You can't be a part of like several or all of the prison gangs. They have a corporate entity in that they um, continue, they, they, it exists independent of who its current members are. So it will, it has a sort of lifelong or, or it exists into perpetuity because of this corporate structure. Now, uh, if you look at this individual, you can see a, a large black hand tattoo and a, an M in the middle. 
that's a very clear indication, very credible signal that he is a member of the Mexican Mafia prison gang. So tattoos do much in prison to communicate membership in these groups. Uh, likewise, as uh, this individual's uh, forehead tattoo suggests, it says white power, these groups are overwhelmingly racially and ethnically segregated. Now, in studying um, prison social order in California, I was very struck to learn that while these prison gangs are incredibly important today, they haven't always existed. Um, there's nothing about prison that requires the presence of groups like the ones I've just described. So um, the California prison system uh, began in 1851 when California became a state. And for more than 100 years, no groups like those prison gangs I've just described uh, existed in the prison system. Uh, there's, no, there's no evidence for them. Starting in the late 1950s and 1960s, we see the initial prison gangs form. Some have very notorious reputations, groups like the Aryan Brotherhood, the Nuestra Familia, and the Black Guerrilla Family, for example. Since the 1970s and their initial emergence, the number of gangs, their gang members, their, their influence on the everyday life of prisons has increased dramatically. And people who work or live in prisons uh, recognize and easily observe that gangs have a sort of dominant influence on uh, prison social order. So why is it that gangs are so important today and yet they didn't exist for more than 100 years? Um, in order to understand that, we need to understand how prisoners uh, govern themselves prior to gangs. And the main ways that they did so is something that they called the convict code or the code or the prisoner's code. And this convict code was a set of informal social norms about what it meant to be a member in good standing in the convict community. It included such things as don't inform on people, don't be overly nosy, don't gossip, don't lie, don't steal, pay back your debts, don't be weak and don't whine. Now, this was not a written set of exhortations. This is the sort of norms that emerged in prisoner interactions about what would raise one's status and raise one's reputation. And to the extent that someone abided by this code, they would be uh, members in good standing with a lot of respect and probably a lot of support from their peers. Someone who consistently violated these norms would fall in the social hierarchy. Um, they might be ostracized, they might be sort of isolated and alone and more likely to be victimized as a result. So there was no one who came up with these rules. There was also no one in charge of monitoring for violations of these rules. People could either follow them or not, and they could either punish uh, deviations or not. So it was an entirely decentralized system. The system that operates today is very centralized, highly organized. Um, it operates along a system of gang-based governance, and it works in a community responsibility system. So this is how a community responsibility system works. Um, everybody in the prison has to be a part of some group. The gangs are not the only groups who can be a part of, but they're most important ones. Within each group, the group itself is responsible for each group member's um, behaviors and actions. So if we imagine that this individual who's highlighted on the left incurs a drug debt from a drug dealer from the group on the right, not only is he responsible that the debt is repaid, but everyone in that group is responsible for um, uh, addressing the problem. And so in practice, what will happen is they, they call them shot callers, but the gang leader of both groups will meet and discuss the issue, and they'll try to work out some way to resolve it. It might be that 
the gang member who incurred the debt has to raise funds from friends and family on the outside to pay it off. Uh, the gang might have enough money amongst itself to settle the debt. It wouldn't be uncommon for that gang member to have to carry out uh, a task or com complete some job for the gang on the right. Uh, and then finally, it's, it's become not uncommon for the gang on the left to assault their own member to the severity that it signals to the other gang that we take this problem seriously and this isn't a problem that we're going to uh, anticipate uh, falling into again. So there's tremendous in-group pressure to facilitate social and economic activity across groups. <clears throat> um, this is uh, a description of the system by a prisoner at a maximum security facility in California. He says, it was my responsibility on the yard to ensure that our people were not harmed by another race. This is sort of code word for gang in this context. He says, I took care of the drug debts. If one of our people became delinquent in a drug debt to another race, it was my responsibility to either cover their drug debt or to have them stabbed, in which case we would send one of ours to stab him. So there's a clear centralized structure that creates rules and identifies specific people to punish deviations from those rules. Um, when new prisoners arrive, they're expected to learn and memorize and follow uh, written rules and regulations. Gangs keep lists. They call them bad news lists or no good lists. And it's essentially the names of people who violated gang rules at some point in the past and should be punished. So when a new prisoner arrives in a particular housing area, uh, the shot caller of the respective gang will basically interview him, find out who he is, and then compare who the new prisoner is to see if he's on one of these no good lists. Um, this list uh, is broken into three sections. The largest is the one in the middle called personals. These are specific people who may have violated, violated gang rules uh, and they should be assaulted um, if they arrive in a particular shot caller's housing area. Uh, the top are uh, disciplines. This is not individuals, but entire gangs uh, of which any member who arrives in the prison should be assaulted. So anybody from Canoga Park Gang, 8th Street, East LA, Stoners 13, any one of those gang members should be assaulted. And it is the fear of landing on this list that um, provides a strong incentive for prisoners to comply with the rules that gangs distribute. The final section are passes. These are people who previously were in one of the other two uh, lists and did something to uh, get themselves sort of back in good graces. They might have paid a fee, for example, or, or a fine for violating past rules. Um, everyone who works in California prison system is very aware of these gang dynamics. Um, the warden at the time at San Quentin State Prison, where I've done some research, gave a very public interview, in fact, and, and said, the Department of Corrections has pretty much given over control the general populations of the prison to gangs. So the gangs are dominant today. Why is it that they're so important today uh, and they weren't previously? Well, I wanna argue that it's because in an earlier period, sort of decentralized institutions based on a person's reputation could provide a lot of governance. But over time, that was no longer effective. And in order to avoid violence, prisoners invested more in centralized institutions along the lines of this mutual responsibility system. 
So the main reason why reputation-based governance worked well in this earlier period is that the prison population was always relatively small. And while there was growth, it was relatively steady growth. In smaller prison populations, we could have a pretty good sense about who follows the rules and who doesn't. We can more easily ostracize people because others will know that that person should be ostracized and not associate with them. And when there's fewer people, it's easier to collect information about someone's relative social standing. However, starting in the 1920s through 1970, we see about a five-fold increase in the prison population. It grows to a height um, that was unprecedented, and it's driven more by a more sustained and steep increase than any other period. Now, starting in the early and mid-1950s, the qualitative accounts based on reports and ethnographies during that period indicate that California prisons were becoming more volatile, more dangerous, and less secure. There was an increase in stabbings amongst prisoners and a significant increase in riots across or among prisoner groups. And so my argument is that as these reputation-based mechanisms fail because of the growing prison population, social order starts to break down, and it's during the later part of this period that prisoners first invest in creating gangs, and each one of them, according to sort of officials and prisoners alike, argue that these groups are initially formed to provide protection in an increasingly dangerous environment. Um, if we look at a little more historical uh, data, this is the data that I just showed you of the California prison population. Um, with the rise of mass incarceration in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, the total population spikes even further. It gets to a high of about 180,000 prisoners. Uh, that dip is because of a Supreme Court in uh, injunction forcing them to reduce the prison population. But the basic argument that I'm making is that in this later period where prisoners, uh, the prisoner world, the prisoner community holds 140, 150,000 prisoners, it's too big to rely simply on reputation mechanisms. It's too difficult to know everyone's relative standing and it's too uh, difficult to communicate when someone falls into bad standing so that they can engage in some collective shaming or ostracism as well. Now, it's not only the total size of the prison population that has increased substantially, the average size of prisons has increased. So today, about the average size of a prison, how many people it holds, is about, uh, about 3,000, uh, somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500. These are large communities that people are forced to interact with. And so these centralized gangs provide the governance. They invest in collecting information, producing rules, and enforcing the rules in a much more organized and centralized way than in that sort of pre-gang convict code uh, social system. Now, as I mentioned at the start, membership in gangs has these four characteristics. And I believe that those characteristics promote or support the effectiveness of the community responsibility system. Gang membership is restrictive, meaning that prisoners can restrict access to membership by people who would incur a lot of debts that the gang is collectively responsible for. Likewise, permanent membership and mutual exclusivity makes it perfectly clear which gang is responsible for which particular person at any point in time. If a person could be affiliated with multiple gangs and incurred a debt, it might be unclear which gang is responsible for that debt. And then finally, while many of these gangs are motivated by racial prejudice, it is distinctive to learn that in the prison system prior to gangs, there was much more racial uh, social interactions than there are today. My argument in part is that these gangs 
fall along racial lines. They segregate along racial and ethnic lines in part as a way so that any prisoner, even if he's new and doesn't know which gang someone's affiliated with, they know to some degree which gangs they affiliate with because you can look at someone and just based on the color of their skin, have a, a decent understanding of which gang is responsible for their behavior. So each one of these membership characteristics seems to support the operation of a community responsibility system. Um, why do they provide governance though? Now, my argument is that the gangs provide governance because it allows them to profit in the underground economy. One prisoner explains, we don't fight in a riot unless we have to. If I'm locked down, then I'm not working. You can make some serious bank in prison and shot callers hate it when you're in lockdown. So gangs exist and govern today to profit. Prisoners turn to gangs because they can't rely on decentralized extra legal governance as they did for more than 100 years. England is another interesting comparison to make with the gang-based governance that exists today. They've adopted many American criminal justice initiatives, mandatory minimum sentences, three strikes laws, honesty and sentencing policy. They've got a drug war, a national drug czar, um, private prisons, electronic monitoring. They're very much followed, um, for better or worse, many of the practices uh, that are used here in, in the United States corrections world. Uh, as such, that makes them a nice comparison case to the California setting. What's curious about the English prison system, however, is that their social order is not home to gangs like those that exist in California. There's no recognizable equivalent of the organized US gang, according to one British sociologist. Uh, some of the individuals that she spoke with described the situation. There's definitely not a gang scene. It's not like there's a gang that runs the prison. It ain't nothing like America with the bloods and crips. So if this prison system is fairly similar to the California system, why are there no gangs in England and many gangs in California. Well, the social order that exists in English prisons um, has the following characteristics. It's uh, very much a, a situation of individual reputations mattering uh, rather than a community responsibility and a group reputation that matters. Um, the affiliations between prisoners are fairly loose and fleeting. There are no centralized organizations um, and there are no obvious and clear leaders amongst the prisoners. Prisoners tend to affiliate based on their postcode, which is the UK equivalent of a zip code. Um, when people have affiliations, they're not permanent and they're not exclusive. You can be sort of in loose affiliation with a variety of different social circles. And the underground economy isn't dominated by gangs, but primarily by sole proprietors, individual entrepreneurs working in the underground economy. So this social system to me strikes me as very similar actually to the convict code era in the California prison system. They're both decentralized systems that uh, govern based on conformance to social norms and a person's relative social standing. So why are they able to engage in the sort of old school style of governance in England today? Uh, my argument is that it's for uh, two or three main reasons. The first is that the California uh, prison system, as I mentioned, holds about 3,500 people per prison. The average size prison in England is only about 700. It's far fewer people. Information costs are a lot lower. So reputation mechanisms should be both low cost and relatively effective. Uh, those are for further comparison, the average prison sizes in uh, Nordic prison systems. Uh, this is a, a histogram that shows how many prisons in each prison system hold uh, a certain number of people. So the most common sized prison in England and Wales 
holds between 500 and 750 people, and there's 32 such prisons in England and Wales. The typical size prison in the US uh, or in California is between 35 and 3,700. Um, but look at the range, right? In California, the largest prison holds more than 5,000 people. The smallest prison in California is still larger than the largest prison in England and Wales. So much smaller prisons facilitates decentralized mechanisms so prisoners don't turn to centralized gangs. A second factor that facilitates um, decentralized governance is that prisoners are typically incarcerated in prisons close to home. This is driven by a correctional philosophy outlined somewhat famously in the Wolf Report which argues that prisons should be community prisons sided within reasonable proximity to the community with which the prisoners hold and have their closest links. So um, they want to incarcerate people close to the communities that the prisoner comes from. One consequence of this is that when a person arrives at a prison, there'll be other people that he knows already from the community that he comes from. So there are pre-prison social networks that can bind prisoners together even when a prisoner arrives on his first day. This also increases the audience and importance of maintaining one's reputation. First of all, a new prisoner may very well be known by a variety of other people in the prison, so they'll know what his reputation is on the street. And while interacting in the prison, each prisoner knows that gossip is going to sort of sp spill out, filter back to the community, and a person may want to maintain their reputation in the community while incarcerated. And then finally, uh, people in the prison know that when they return to the community, they will still be in conversation with other people who they were incarcerated with. So it extends the life of the relationship and interactions, and in doing so, increases the importance of reputation and reduces the cost of getting information about people's sort of trustworthiness uh, and social standing. How is it that they're able to incarcerate people so close to their homes? Well, the reason is because in, as implied in the previous slide, the UK has about five times as many prisons as California. Um, the ge geography of the country is about a third the size of California. So they're able to spread their many small prisons throughout the, uh, the population in the country far more easily than California. In California, they only have 35 prisons, and that means that very often prisoners are going to prisons hundreds or thousands of miles away from where they came from. To just give some sense about the flavor of the social interactions in the English prison, one explains uh, how this locality affects social order. He says, firstly, I like to be around people who are probably from where I'm from. So the chance of me knowing them is high and everything, and we have more in common and stuff like that. There's also very little rigid ethnic or racial segregation within English prisons. Again, consistent with this idea that that becomes especially salient and important in large populations with centralized gangs. Uh, and then finally, one prisoner explains, uh, with like 50 of us that's been on this wing for ages, we all know each other. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Indian, you'd all be together. And that captures very well this idea. Uh, we've been on this wing for ages, we all know each other. So the ability to rely on small society, reputation-based governance, it works well here. And so they rely on that instead of these more organized uh, gangs. Um, I won't provide any evidence, but this theory also seems to explain the variation across U.S. states. The biggest prison systems, places like California and Texas, also have the most entrenched 
gang programs. The smallest prison systems like Vermont, Maine, Wyoming, they lack uh, these entrenched gang-based structures. So to conclude, um, I basically am trying to develop and test a theory to explain the tremendous institutional diversity in prisons around the world and through time. Why do prisoners collectively have a very big influence in some prisons and essentially no major influence in other prisons? Why do prisoners invest in more centralized institutions in some places and times and decentralized ones in others? That's the goal of the project. And understanding uh, prison social order actually teaches us lessons uh, of broader concern. And so there's large debates in law about when people can engage in trade exchange and they can do so in a way that's entirely self-enforcing. So people who can't rely on strong, effective legal institutions, how effective and what are the limitations of relying on extra legal institutions to engage in trade? And there's a few implications, uh, I think, from prison to this broader uh, question. The first is that some of the earliest studies of self-enforcing exchange look at the rich and the wealthy, both today and historical periods. And they find that these sort of rich, wealthy, influential people could engage in trade without relying on state-based institutions. And while compelling, I thought that that's a little bit unfair in that it's drawing from the most elite, the best resourced people in those respective societies. Studying prisons is the opposite. Prisons draw into them disproportionately disadvantaged socioeconomic and minority community members. They lack human capital. They often lack social capital. They lack resources. These should lead to us thinking it's unlikely that they're able to engage in cooperative self-governance. Uh, but in my book, I show that actually they can overcome these actually to a, a pretty considerable and impressive degree. A second argument is that sometimes the, the wealthy and the elite who engage in self-enforcing exchange they do so because they know if it fails, they can always revert back to legal institutions. And so their cooperation is driven not because they're able to govern their own trade, but because of the shadow of the state on their self-governing trade. Well, because of the illicit nature of the economy and life in prisons, you can't turn to prison officials and say, look, you know, the quantity or quality of this heroin isn't what I expected. Can you please resolve this dispute? The illegality of the activities they're engaged in means that that cooperation that emerges is not driven by the shadow of the state. Uh, and then finally, the last one I'll mention is that um, past work has argued that reputation-based mechanisms can facilitate self-governing communities, but these only work primarily in small, tight-knit societies. Uh, my argument is that um, people can engage in extra-legal governance effectively in large, loose-fit societies uh, albeit under different mechanisms or with the use of different types of institutions. Uh, so with that, I guess I'd be very happy to open up the discussion and uh, have some Q&A. Okay, great, great. Thank you very much. And again, just a reminder to the attendees, um, if you have a question that you'd like me to ask on your behalf, please uh, put it, type it in the live event Q&A. Uh, we do have a couple already. Um, actually, the first one, I'll start by reading the question, but then maybe elaborate a bit on where I think the uh, person's coming from. Uh, we got a question earlier in the presentation asking, do prisoners in Latin American countries have a low incentive to leave their created governance? And I guess to kind of elaborate on where I think the, the question's coming from, you know, it, if we think about your research, if I'm understanding it correctly, what we observe at any point in time 
very often is kind of what is stable at that point in time, but also your analysis is like critically dependent upon observing changes in structures, uh, socioeconomic over time within the prisons. So I would think that those changes in structures are brought about by incentives as characteristics of the population change. Um, you know, like the, the evolution of the gang structure in California over the last 150 years and so forth. Um, so is it accurate to say that the incentives for the change in the social structures are driven by the changes in the population characteristics? And if so, with that in mind, um, do you observe any noticeable patterns in Latin American countries in particular recently? Yeah, I, that's a, a great set of questions. Uh, I think I think prisoners respond um, over time in a very rational way to the constraints that they face. So one constraint is how they can govern in small versus large populations. Another constraint is how much access do they have to resources? How much access do they have to proactive and productive uh, prison staff administering the prison? And so the argument, yeah, very much is not only across countries, uh, but also within uh, regional, sub-regionally sub in Latin America, we do observe variation in those constraints. That seems to predict pretty well how prisoners respond in terms of how much extra legal governance they produce and what structure it takes. Um, for example, there's a prison system in the Dominican Republic that operates more along the San Pedro style line of uh, sort of isolation but autonomy. There's a second parallel prison system that looks more like um, uh, the California system. So the, the prison officials are present, they're within a facility, they have more control and they provide more resources. And so within that country, across the two prison systems, prisoners face different constraints and they've engaged in very different um, uh, activities in terms of extra legal governance with much more extra legal governance in one and much less uh, in the other. Maybe I'll just end with, you know, sort of a, a variation on the question might ask whether prisoners sort of have it too, too good when they're able to have the freedom to sort of produce these institutions. So some aspects of life in San Pedro prison don't seem very undesirable. Uh, but what I found from studying everything from the worst prisons in Latin America to the very nicest prisons in the Nordic countries is that people overwhelmingly don't want to be there. They all, almost all are delighted to leave. Um, because prisons are fundamentally a place where you lack autonomy, you lack control over your life, um, and in some of them are sort of very pro proactively uh, oppressed uh, by either prisoners or staff. So e even when prisoners are effective at producing a governance that betters their lives, most are very happy to, to be able to exit uh, th those situations. Okay, that actually perfectly leads into the next question that we have from an audience member. It's related to the the pictures that you showed of the prisons in Norway. And I mean, when you put those up, I was thinking like, geez, that looks like a nice retirement plan. You know, <laughs> go, go to Norway and commit a crime and get incarcerated. Uh, question uh, audience member asked would, you know, well, hey, if do, do you, and you already touched on it, but would, would in those countries, do you see like the, the threat of incarceration being kind of less, you know, when someone could get arrested just for free living accommodations, um, you know, does that then begin, is there any evidence that that begins to undermine the effectiveness of the criminal justice system broadly and using prison as a deterrent, as if you can maybe touch on that a little more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think the first would be to recognize the observation that there are significantly more social programs for people in the Nordic countries 
So it's not a matter of destitution and poverty, but if I get incarcerated, I get to live in this nice prison. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more support uh, available uh, outside of the prison. Um, yeah, the, 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 that prison is striking. I, I, I'll ask my students how it compares to their dorms, and they're always like, oh, that, that looks a lot nicer. Um, nevertheless, though, I mean, it does raise this question about um, does the high quality, relatively speaking, of life in Nordic prisons undermine what we turn to prisons to do? And um, I think the argument would be that it's the investment in resources and programming that reduces the recidivism rate for Nordic prisoners. So they're less likely to come back to the prison because of the training and the education and resources that they have access to while incarcerated. So going forward, um, it can reduce crime through that. The other is when we think of prisons as institutions for deterrence, I think that there's you know, sort of relatively weak evidence that prisons are primarily effective at deterring crime. Um, and, and that's for the following reason, which is that um, the, the, the most persuasive uh, deterrence, the strong, the way to deter crime the most is when the sanctions, the penalties are swift, certain, and fair. Swift, certain, fair threats of punishment deter lots of crime. Do prisons provide swift, certain, and fair deterrence? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, it's not swift because um, in places like California and, and in the Nordic countries, a person might be arrested multiple or dozens of times before even entering a, a, a sort of felony charge. Uh, the legal process can take years to unfold. Uh, and so eventually someone might end up in prison, but it's very much a slow and uncertain process. So prisons don't provide a lot of deterrence. A second reason is because we typically think that um, on average, uh, people who have uh, committed criminal offenses do so because of an uh, impulse control and a heavy, heavy discounting of the future, meaning that I value stuff a lot today and I'm not willing to wait long to get something in the future. And the flip side of that is that if that is a sort of profile of offending behavior, then that means that not only do they discount future benefits that they're not willing to wait for, they're also discounting future punishments which are going to be very ineffective at influencing behavior. So the 20th year that a person spends in prison necessarily has to come 20 years after they've been in prison. And so because it's so far off, it's not swift, certain, and fair. And so, yeah, so I think that prisons, um, are we turn to them to accomplish many different goals. They have relative success in accomplishing those, but I don't think deterrence is, is, is maybe the most important one. So when we make life in prison better, I don't think it encourages more crime. Okay, um, shifting gears have been thinking about the, the social structures uh, within different types of prisons. We have a question from the audience. Do the types of crimes a person commits uh, generally determine their ranks or social statuses within prisons? And I guess if there's differences across different types of prisons, how does it differ? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It does vary depending on which country we look at. One thing that doesn't seem to vary is that people incarcerated for sex offenses are overwhelmingly at the bottom of the prison social hierarchy. Now, sometimes that's the only important distinction. Are you a sex offender or not? Other places have gradations um, in that certain crimes are seen as sort of uh, more impressive. So armed robbery, bank robbery are seen to be crimes that require courage and guts. And that seems to be ranked fairly high in many prison systems. Um, 
those are the sorts of distinctions that some prisoners draw. But in places like England, um, prisoners say there's not really much of a hierarchy. There are like a few, like the worst of, you know, the, the least desirable, you know, sort of lowest standing people. But, you know, 90% of prisoners are just, you know, uh, you know, not in any particular social relationship to each other. Um, it's also related to you know, maybe crimes or sex offenders. Uh, are there noticeable patterns for like people that commit crimes against children in general or other populations that are seen as like innocent and not easily able to defend themselves? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, vulnerable populations like children and, and women is, is, yeah, that's a scene as, um, yeah, that, that definitely is, is a negative in the, in the social standing. You know, sort of related to that is I'm, I'm running some experiments in Brazil. You know, there's survey experiments that ask people to describe whether an instance of lynching on the street is more or less justified. And what you note is that if the victim of some crime is a child, and if it's a sex offense, that's what justifies lynching the most um, in this very different situation. There seems to be some sort of deep, I don't know if it's universal, but incredibly widespread globally and historical condemnation of certain types of acts, and that's replicated in the prisons for sure. Um, another question I thought of uh, when you talked about the you know, social structure in the English prisons, you noted how uh, kind of with the small geographic areas, very often a new incoming uh, incarcerated person would already have kind of a pre-existing social structure. This partly made me think about, have you looked at or are you aware of research looking at environments like POW camps um, or you know, even concentration camps, you know, in the POW camps in particular, you know, you would have existing kind of pre-existing social bonds with the new people that are coming in before they even get there. What do you see dramatic differences in the types of social structures and those types of environments contrasted with kind of general criminal populations? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great observation. I, and I, I, I tend to think that you're you're right, which is that it may be that prisoner of war camps can draw on um, existing beliefs and hierarchies, right? There's a relationship already established. There might also be a selection effect of who goes into the military versus who goes into a prison, right? And you might think that they are maybe more patriotic or more cooperative, maybe. And so when you look at, there's not that much done on prisoner of war camps, but the, one of the first prison ethnographies actually is by an economist, R.A. Radford. It's the Economic Organization of a POW Camp. It's published in 1945 based on his experience in a German camp. And he describes very much a system where um, people, you know, cooperated very effectively, markets emerged, there were entrepreneurs in practice. Uh, and so, yeah, it looked like there was sort of a pro-cooperative aspect to, uh, to, to, that, to that environment because of holding former uh, military members instead of, uh, of criminal offenders. Um, but that's not always the case. So in my, in my new book, I do look at Andersonville Prison, which I believe is in your, your state. Uh, the Andersonville POW camp from the Civil War. And what we find there is no cooperation emerging at all, no investment in extra legal institutions. And in fact, I argue that prison officials failed to govern that prison. But unlike the Bolivian case, where prisoners have access to economic resources on the outside world, the Andersonville case was shut off. And so there was no access to outside resources that they could then use to invest in, in extra legal institutions. Okay, great. Uh, thank you again, David, for your time. Great presentation. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.